from episode 532 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today and super jazzed for you guys to hear this conversation I had with Emma Stonex, who is the author of The Lamplighters, which got so much buzz all over the place when it was announced and rightfully so because this book is stunning. Um, it We get into obviously exactly what the plot is about, but um, this particular conversation was just really, really fun because, you know, every author I've, we've ever talked to has been great, um, genuinely, I mean that, um, but sometimes you get people who, like, just, you can tell are really, really enjoying the conversation, and Emma, um, in addition to answering my questions and having a conversation with me, like, started asking me questions about things about her book, which, um, was just really fun. It was, it was really fun back and forth. You could tell that we were having a, a really great time. Uh, we talk a whole bunch about... Um, the sea and like the creepiness of, of oceans um, and the mystery of it but also a whole bunch about loneliness and coping with that and reaching out to people when you need it and um, feels very uh, apropos with uh, everything going on in the pandemic still so um, yeah I also wanted to give everyone a reminder I mentioned it briefly in our last episode but um, if you are a fan of audiobooks you can enjoy watching the Audis um, on the 22nd, which is actually today, um, you can stream it live on YouTube. So I'll put a link in our, our bio, in our bio for that. Also, thank you to everyone for all the kind words about our episode on Thursday about books by Asian and Asian American authors. Um, keep supporting the Asian American community in any way that, that you can, um, even if it's just something like we did, which is just lifting up some voices of, of Asian American authors. Um, but yeah, anything you can do to help out those who need it most, um, would be really, you know, obviously appreciated and, um, yeah, so that's everything there. If you want to get a hold of us, of course, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds or shoot us an email, ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Um, and if you haven't done so yet, if you want to give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts, that helps people find us a little bit more easily. And yeah, it's just, uh, makes us feel good. gives us a smile on our face. Okay. I'm not going to keep you any longer. I'm going to let you guys get to this lovely conversation with just the phenomenal Emma Stonex on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. We found that, like you as an author, I imagine you would probably like to hear questions that you're not going to hear a dozen times over the next three days from people who are like, so what inspired you to write this book? I know you're going to hear that a thousand times. I've already heard that about, I'd say about 150, I'm but you sure. know what? I'm so enthusiastic about talking about this book and the story that inspired it. I'm more than happy to answer anything. Okay. Well, tell you what, let's just, let's just jump into it. So do you want to just maybe kind of kick us off by introducing the lamplighter? Cause I, cause I never want to give away too much of the plot as the host. So how would you describe the lamplighters to someone if they were just getting introduced to the book? The lamplighters is a mystery suspense novel about three lighthouse keepers who vanish from their tower lighthouse in 1972 and they leave all sorts of weird clues in their wake. The door is locked from the inside, the clocks are stopped, uh, the table is laid for a meal but there's no food mm-hmm. um, and this is a tower lighthouse in the middle of the sea. There's literally nothing around. They have to be inside the tower or out. Um, it's based on the real life vanishing of the Flannan Isles lightkeepers in 1900, mm-hmm. who again disappeared without trace, leaving weird clues in their wake. 
Um, and I'm just deeply inspired by lighthouses in general and also the sea, which I think is such a powerful setting for any kind of mystery. So my novel um, visits the three lighthouse keepers on the Maiden Rock, which is a lighthouse I've invented. Their names are Arthur, Bill and Vincent. Um, and we're with them on the tower in the weeks before they're vanishing um, as we see conflicts develop and tensions coming together. Um, and we also see their wives 20 years after the event as they're coming to terms with what happened and the lack of answers. Um, and the novel attempts to offer a resolution to this mystery while shining a light on themes of loneliness and isolation, which are really themes that have come to the fore hugely over the last 18 months. So it has that sort of extra resonance completely unexpectedly um, given the times that we're living in. Yeah, you didn't know that you were writing a pandemic quarantine novel at the time, <laughs> did you? <laughs> I'm sort of hoping that people won't be sick of thinking about quarantine and think, I just want to read about people being together all the time. <laughs> it's not quite this book. <laughs> no, it's it's not. But at the same time, there's so much I want to ask about because I, lo I love this book and this story so much. I should tell you, right behind me, I have a pup. Um, I just noticed the pup. I thought, is that a cat or is that... Oh, oh yeah. So he, he, God bless you. Yeah. So he's on a, he's on a, um, he's on a bed behind me and yes. he, he's my old, he, he's, well, he's not, he's not my, I have two dogs. Um, he's eight. My other one is 10. The other one doesn't deign to bring himself upstairs during my interviews, but this one just like is always behind me. And a lot of times I forget to tell people and then he'll just like stand up right here. -ish. I did just see, I saw some limbs extending. I thought, is someone in that? someone in that bed like, yeah well there's, there's a there's a some there's a some pup um but yeah he'll you'll see him popping around but he'll probably just go back to sleep so what's okay back to the uh, what's that what's his name oh that's remy um and then my other dog's name is holden not named after catcher in the rye because i i'm sorry i was gonna ask because you're a literary person it's okay in fact i um i'm not the biggest fan of that particular book um, and so I should have thought that through when I named my dog 10 years ago, how frequently <laughs> people in the book world would ask me like, oh, so you must love Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield, right? And I'm like, no, he was a whiny brat. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Getting, getting back to your book. Uh, so the first thing I kind of want to ask is you wrote about this unsolvable mystery, really. I mean, if, and if you really like look into it it's more than likely they got washed away by the, you know, by the sea, but there's so much that goes into it. So we've spoke to a lot of mystery writers before who like to write themselves into a corner and then find a way out. Mm. You start at a point where you're in that corner already. So what made you want to write a story based on something where there really isn't an answer that we have? That's such a great question because I did deliberately make the situation as extreme as possible. So the real life event was on an island lighthouse. Um, and I thought, how can I make that even more mm -hmm. extreme? And that would be by putting this lighthouse in the middle of the sea. And I thought I'll have the door locked, but I'll have it locked from the inside. So you've got the most, um, yeah, the most extreme locked room mystery you could probably have in terms of setting. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe it's a sort of sadomasochistic thing. I just wanted to um, start from a really difficult point, I guess, <laughs> and work it out from there. Because I didn't know originally what I 
what resolution I wanted to offer. Mm-hmm. I felt very sure about, um, I wanted to leave, leave readers with enough space to put their own interpretations into it. I didn't want to categorically say, this is what happened because the real mystery is unsolved still. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give readers a little bit of space, but at the same time offer enough to be satisfying as a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, I, I figured that out fairly early on, but yeah, starting from a tower was definitely yeah. made, it more, made it more interesting for a challenge for me. So this is something, and this may sound silly to you as someone who has spent now so much time researching lighthouses. I, I was thinking about this. I actually, I grew up um, basically on a lake. In fact, I, I'm, I live in Ohio in the, in the States. It's the, the Great Lakes territory. I don't know how familiar you are with our topography and geography, but um, I actually, I live in a house. I can, if I look out my window, I can see the lake like two streets over. So I'm very, I'm familiar with lighthouses that are on the shore we've had we have them in our area as well but this is a lighthouse out on the sea can you maybe explain to our listeners the purpose of those because it as soon as I read about it it made sense but I was at first I was like why would they exist out there so just I think that might be a question people ask so why would a lighthouse just be kind of randomly out in the sea yeah I mean I assumed that there were these tower lighthouses all over the world but I think actually they are quite specific to the British coastline because I was chatting with various editors in the US when the lamplight was on submission. And actually a couple of them said to me, what are these tower lights? And, and they weren't familiar with them either. Mm-hmm. So um, particularly off the southwest coast of England, there are some really treacherous reefs, um, often as far out as 15 miles from the mainland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since people started shipping on these waters there were terrible shipwrecks which Mm -hmm. actually to the people on land were quite profitable because often the ship would be ruined and then all of the um the stock that it was carrying and all the wealth it was carrying would wash to shore which was great news for coastal (laughs) villages um but in it started in the 17th century late 17th century um people decided that this wrecking had to stop and the only way to do that was to build lights um beacons for ships on these reefs to Mm -hmm. warn the ships to steer clear yeah um and you can imagine what kind of an endeavor that was building something on on the water i mean it's just completely counterintuitive um and of course many many people died in the construction of these lighthouses and there's one famous lighthouse in the uk called the ediston and the lighthouse that stands there today is actually the fourth attempt so the first one started in 1698. And I think the final version that we see today was lit in the late 19th century. So it took two centuries to finally hone doing one of these tower lights because they have to stand against the sea and against the weather. Yeah. And as I said, it's just a completely audacious <laughs> building project. <laughs> it, it really, it's that's definitely one of those things. I am the type of person where I will if I'm ever in like a cathedral or just even like seeing a large building, I have that thought in my mind. Where I'm like, human beings made this and I can't, I, I can't comprehend. I don't have an engineer's brain to like no. be able to reconcile how that and, works. And I think, and I think with lighthouses as well, the idea that despite the challenges and despite the many lives that these efforts took, I think it's amazing that it persevered. And I think that that is so symbolically rich mm-hmm. in the lighthouses because it's for saving other people's lives and, it's the light of hope and, and mm-hmm. reaching out and helping people. And the idea that this effort 
continued over so long in order to to make that happen I think is incredible so I I saw you you wrote a a blog kind of about this and it was really interesting because you talked about how so many authors say they were told to write what they know and Mm. I was thinking about this as well that the the book I'm working on is very much something I know it's based on like my experiences when I was in high school because that was sort of my jumping off point. I was like, oh, I should write about what I know. Mm. And you were very explicit in this blog where you're like, I wanted to write about something I didn't know. And so you don't have, you have like a tangential family connection to the sea, but you have no direct connection to lighthouses or anything. So what, like what jumped out about this particular story that you did want to write it? Um, Well, in that same piece, I, I touch on, I mean, I, I don't know anything about lighthouses, or I didn't know anything about lighthouses. I do now, yeah. <laughs> I do, oh, I do now. <laughs> Before I started researching, I didn't know anything. But I did put myself into this book because for some reason, they're my passion and the sea is my passion. And I think it's really interesting to ask, where do those things come from? Mm-hmm. Um, why does anyone choose to write about anything? Um, there'll be bits, you know, in, 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 in your novel, I'm sure that are things that you directly know about, but other things that you are just called towards that you're interested in. Um, I definitely think that childhood holidays were a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. My grandma's house on the Isle of Wight, she was married to a merchant seaman who was away at sea for many months of the year. So, I mean, I wasn't really conscious of this before I started writing The Lamplight, because it's only looking back that I think actually there was this feeling, and perhaps I ingested this all when I was young, being near to the sea, being in a family where there was an absent man. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe when I came across the real life mystery behind The Lamplighters, something just clicked into place mm-hmm. and it just felt like the perfect fit. Yeah, I mean, that that does make sense because I, I think you're right. I similarly I've always been drawn to large bodies of water and it's this unique like mixture of feeling the sort of tranquility of it especially you know, like late at night or early morning when like you know kind of you can see and, and you mentioned this but like the, uh, there's several scenes where the the lamplighters themselves kind of see like the sunrise and it's almost like impo- they say something about like it's impossible to not think that there's more than this and, and all these different things but also just the like the enormity of it like I said I live I don't even live by a sea I live by a lake but it's just like the sheer like impossibility of being of being out in an ocean on you know this giant lighthouse but really there's nothing that surrounds you and if it's a gray day which I imagine it probably is pretty frequently over there as much like it is here you can't even see where like the sea ends and the the sky begins and it is it, it forces you it just forces thoughts on you that you might not even realize. So I can imagine when, you know, rediscovering that and saying like, oh yeah, there is really, there's something here that you want to dig it off your chest for sure. I, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. And I think the sea in general and, and, you know, you're, you're next to a lake. It's just, it's the water I think is a perfect setting for a mystery. It's reflective. It throws things back on characters that they maybe don't want to think about. Um, the sea is just so mysterious anyway. I mean, I read that we know more about outer space than we do some regions of the ocean, which I just find baffling. Um, So, and it's the changing moods of the ocean as well. It's the changing moods of the weather. 
when I was researching the lamplighters, I went down to Cornwall and I stayed in a cottage with a friend. And while we were there, we were besieged by mists, sea mm-hmm. mists, like rolling gray mists that came in and they came right up to the house. And it was like, I mean, I was saying it, describing it like it was a person because it felt like a living thing. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a book about tower lights and I looked out the window. When I say I looked out, I couldn't see anything. <laughs> and it was this really claustrophobic, disorientating um, sensation. And when I went for a walk, I couldn't even see my own feet. And I thought, how weird would it be to be in the middle of the water and just be essentially on another planet? Yeah. It, it's so it's so funny you say that actually last week. It's we're having a um a warm spell right now in the in the States, and I'm not complaining about it because it's the end of February and it's like 48 degrees outside today, and the sun is out, and that is very rare here in Cleveland. But um Last week I went for a run near, I'm a, I'm a runner and I went for a run near the lake hmm. and it had just been, we had had like 12 straight days of just like frigid temperature and it was very cloudy. And so most of the lake was frozen over and the sky was like gray and white. Like I literally couldn't see, it was so, like you said, it was so disorienting. I couldn't see where one started and the other began. So I know, I absolutely know what you mean. It's so like, where am I? It feels like you're on, you know, oh. like almost on a movie set. It's and how that affects you psychologically. And mm-hmm. if that were to be coupled with isolation and cabin fever and claustrophobia, the sort of tricks that the water and the weather can play on your mind yeah. and how that might have contributed to, to what happened in the lamplighters. Yeah. So you wrote something else uh, for, for Waterstones. You wrote a piece about the importance of the women's side of this story. And maybe it's just because I my mom was a teacher and like a lot of, I've always focused on my, in my mind, like the importance of like women in stories. I was actually thinking about the other way around because to me, I feel like this book is the women's story. Like I was actually surprised in the first few chapters when you gave a voice to the men there. Like in my mind, it was, I, when I opened up the book, I was like, oh, it's going to be these women and what happened to them and trying to figure out this mystery. And then you did, you gave the men on, you know, on the lighthouse there say as well. So I guess what made you want to kind of tell the story from all sides? And did you always know that you wanted to provide kind of everyone's point of view? Because again, to me, this is this is the women's story, but what made you want to kind of make it so fully rounded like that? Um, do you, uh, just a quick question for you, because I'm really interested. Um, mm-hmm. Did you think that because I'm a woman author, did you think, oh, it'll be about women? No, I honestly, I, the reason I thought about it was because the, this isn't a spoiler. The book opens with you learning as a reader that these men disappeared. Yeah. And so from my point of view, when there's something like that, I kind of instantly thought about the women in the story just from a point of view of like, okay, they lost something. So in my mind, I was like, okay, the story is going to be about what they lost and the unanswered questions about the fact that they can't figure out why they lost it. And also the fact that they're alone just like the men are in the time of it so I'm I don't think it was the fact that you as a author are female just more so that in my mind we so infrequently get to hear stories that are like historical fiction from the dead's point of view so honestly like I guess in my mind it would have been the other like I if it would have been reversed like if if the if the lamplighters would have been female and the people who stayed at home would have been male I would have been surprised at the women. Um, mm. I guess it's like the people who disappeared. I was surprised to hear their yes. point of view, which is lovely. I loved it. But I'm just curious 
why you wanted to to tell it that way. That that, that did almost sound like an accusing question. Like, why did you no, want no. everyone's voice? <laughs> no, it's really fascinating. Actually, I loved hearing about that. Um, initially, I was really set on it just being about men. I wasn't going to put women in it at all. I wanted it to feel like a really. Um, I wanted to feel like the tower light. So just have these really closed perspectives of the men. Mm-hmm unable to get out of this one circular wall that was my kind of idea and feeling Mm. for the book but the more I read about lighthouse keepers the more the women's stories just came to me and and rounded it off and and made it enriched it and I thought I can't tell this just from the men there has to be because there was so much about personal lives and relationships and Mm. humanity between people that I wanted to explore I knew that I couldn't do it from that restricted perspective. Um, and I think that the the women, they bring so much to this story. Mm-hmm. And I love having the men's perspective in the 70s counterbalanced by the women's interpretations so that the reader is constantly being moved almost tidily mm-hmm. between points of view, um, which goes back to what I said a, a minute ago about leaving room for the reader to bring their own imagination into play and and to feel free to disagree with what some characters are saying because they disagree with each other sometimes or they remember certain events differently um so I wanted that really fluid feeling Mm -hmm. um so that the reader isn't quite sure of how firm the footing is in this novel and I could only do that by using multiple perspectives well and it's interesting because the thing that I think people will, they may come to the novel understanding that it's, a, you know, it's about these lamplighters who are sitting, who are sitting on this, um, you know, in this lighthouse. And they'll probably think, and I want to project onto every reader, but I'm going to make a <laughs> wide sweeping judgment now. Um, I imagine a lot of people will think like, oh, it's about the loneliness that the people on the lighthouse are experiencing. But in reality, there's three people there at all times. And unless you just truly abhor the other two you're with you're actually forced into constant communication and there's all these conversations that they have at you know at daybreak and all these things whereas in reality the the managing loneliness dealing with loneliness is the thing that the women had to do because they are in these cottages by themselves and yes they're connected to their neighbors and there's um you know there's people they can see but really they're the ones who are truly experiencing the loneliness because the men in this story chose this path. They mm-hmm. said, I'm going to go, whether it's because it was in their family or just because they enjoyed it. Like they chose to go and spend months at a time out in the sea. And it's the women who are kind of left there. So mm-hmm. again, this isn't, this isn't even really like a question so much. It's just like, I, I love the concept of this like forced isolation. And like you said, that's the part that I think I really did um, relate to because of, you know, impending pandemic and ongoing pandemic that we're experiencing. Absolutely. And I went to stay in keepers cottages, um, when I was researching this novel, um, and they were just so isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, so you would have, you'd have the village and then the lighthouse on the coast, and it would often be miles from the village down a really narrow track. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get there, you're already feeling that you're out on a limb and you're right on the sea. And all you can see is the water. And I imagined for these women being able to see this little lighthouse in the distance, Mm -hmm. 
because some of them you can just see if you squint from a promontory in the haze, this tiny little matchstick <laughs> on a clear day. And to know that your husband was out there, but not be able to reach him mm-hmm. must have been such a strange feeling. Mm-hmm. And as you say, this wasn't isolation that these women had chosen. Mm-hmm. This was something they went along with for their husband's careers, which was you know, pretty much the lay of the land for a lot of women in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, but often um, I read about keepers who preferred to be on lighthouses that couldn't see the land and their wives agreed that they'd rather just not see each other at all because it was this tantalizing bait in the distance that Mm -hmm. you just it was worse being able to see it and I think that's really compelling yeah it's almost like um when people talk about walking through like if they're people who have survived like wandering through the desert and like seeing those oasis oasis seas it's almost it it's more frustrating to be able to see a thing and not reach it as opposed to not know that it's there yeah I I don't know. I just like the, the thought of, you know, I, I keep coming back to the, the sea and like, that's, I struggle to explain, like if someone was like, what genre would you put this in? Cause you, you mentioned like, it's, it's a mystery, but it's not a mystery in the sense that it's like an Agatha Christie mystery. It's, it's a mystery of what happened to them, but it's also, you know, it's a reflection on these you know, these people with these relationships and, uh, you know, these, it's both isolation and also forced community, you know, what, um, what did you find most challenging about this? Was there an aspect that you struggled with or a voice that you just, you were worried about? Um, I struggled the most with arranging the dropping of the hints in the right way, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, it's a bit like an onion, there's a lot of layers in it. And it was, what I needed to foreshadow when, what I needed to reveal, what I needed to hold back, what I wanted readers to think, what I wanted one character to think about another one and when, which obviously all novelists do, and this is part of writing a book. Um, but because I had so many different points of view, mm-hmm. I had to be really careful about what seeds I sowed when. And that was when my editors really, <laughs> really helped. Because yeah. um, you know what it's like, you get to the end of writing a book and you just cannot see the wood for the trees anymore. And I nearly drove myself mad with writing this book. I mean, I actually did. And I was I was so obsessed with kind of solving this puzzle. And, and I read a review of it this morning and the reader herself said it was like assembling a giant jigsaw. And I thought, yeah, that was what writing it was like as well. I just had this awful jigsaw in my office that I just couldn't do. Um, but I did in the end. Yeah, I was so... And that, that's why I kind of getting back to sort of the one of the first questions I asked you about writing about a mystery that we don't know the answer to. Was that exciting or frustrating? I mean, I'm sure it vacillated between the two, but was it like, oh, I can write my own ending? Or was it, man, there's really no closure for any of this? Like for you as an author, I mean, obviously you're going to write closure for us, the reader, but you personally, how did it? was it exciting or was it kind of frustrating definitely exciting I love an unsolved mystery I don't know about you but I find real life unsolved mysteries so they they just encourage your imagination and that's what I wanted to convey in this novel was to encourage the reader's imagination as well on this really fascinating event that happened um I think for me I felt it was really important not to trespass 
too heavily into the real event, Mm -hmm. not attempt to retell the 1900 disappearance or to get involved with those men's lives or try to speak for them or their Mm -hmm. family. That would have felt completely wrong and disrespectful. Um, And that's why I moved it to 1970s and I moved it down from Scotland down into Cornwall um, in the south of England because I wanted to distance myself from that a little bit Um, but no it was hugely exciting because an author can take it in any direction she wants then Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew what I what I found the most interesting about the real event was the psychology of the keepers and Mm -hmm. that's really what drove the lamplighters was getting to the heart and getting to the minds of the people who did this job and what it was really like, rather than the sort of romanticized ideas that many of us have about lighthouses, the sort mm-hmm. of, you know, um, like over in the UK, we have little wooden lighthouses that you can have on your bathroom, like, you know, like that yeah. sort of thing. Uh-huh. And like Captain Birdseye and like <laughs> seagulls and things. I just, I mean, that's all lovely, but I wanted to get to sort of a darker side of it, I suppose, mm-hmm. and a more authentic side about the isolation yeah well and and that's the thing about the the sea and just you know large bodies of water and all these things is like there are so many romanticized versions of it there's you know there's concepts of people like here in the states you know there's key west down where you know hemingway wrote and everyone's like oh it's we love these little seaside towns and you know going to you know eat lobster rolls on a on a boardwalk and all these things like yes there is that but the sea also does provide you know, it's terrifying. It's there, you know, it's something where just like the immensity of it, the enormity of it, you know, even just flying over in an airplane, if you look down, it, like it, you, it, like I get this personal feeling in my chest where it's like overwhelming to see. And so, yeah, being on a lighthouse, especially one in the middle of the sea, I, I do hope people realize that when they're reading through, like, you're on the middle of a storm and there's truly no place to go. I guess you're a hundred and some odd feet yeah. in the air, but. And the way, the way that they ended up engineering the towers to stand, to stay standing was that they would slightly move. Mm-hmm. With, so in a storm, you would have this kind of ripple effect that would come up from the bottom of the tower because it has to shake with it. <laughs> so imagine being inside I... and they would have, so their kitchen was um, really near the top of the tower near the lantern. And they would have, which is about 85 feet above the water, but they would have wave spray slapping the windows, coming coming right over the top of the tower. Um, And imagine just being such a seasoned lighthouse keeper that you're in there smoking your fags, not really bothered about it. But then other ones who were like white knuckled and thinking we're going to go over it any minute. It must have been (laughs) taking a real grit to, to withstand it. I, I can't even imagine. Did you get to go? You mentioned going to the um, the cottages, but did you get a chance to actually go up into various you know, lighthouses for this project? I've been in land lighthouses before and mm-hmm. island lighthouses, but I've not been in a tower light. They're really hard to get to now. So mm-hmm. the ones in the UK, they're all automated. So there's nobody living in them anymore. Um, and they now have helipads on top so that the maintenance people can land and do what they need to do because the traditional landing by boat is just so hairy yeah. like even in like when when the men were doing it um by relief boat it was just a really treacherous unpleasant experience mm-hmm. um so i yeah there's no way that i could have could have got onto one i don't think 
um, maybe one day I would dearly love to. I, I think I need to make friends with someone who can take me there in a helicopter. <laughs> because I would love, like that would be my ultimate, you know, just, just to go into a tower that's been abandoned for 20 years and feel those feelings and feel that connection after everything I've learned about lighthouses would be brilliant. Yeah, I, I love, I, the concept of being, I wonder what it would feel like to be like up that high, even just as like a, a visitor, just being, like you said, you're, you're so high above the sea, but you're really not when it comes to the storms and things. Yeah. I, I haven't been able to stop. I I literally like I've physically like, or not physically, like mentally placed myself in these locations now because of your book. I can't (laughs) think about it. Thank you. But I think that that's another thing about the towers that for me is so fascinating because they're so hard to get to for, unless you're a lighthouse keeper and you know, that hasn't happened for many years now, but not be but there being a building that you're not allowed to go in or touch even if you went up in a boat you'd be at a certain distance because the reef is so treacherous mm-hmm. and it's so weird that there are buildings that nobody ever gets to touch or go in mm-hmm. again that's really compelling um they're like mirages on the water yeah um and they're so gigantic as well like the immensity of all of this granite coming up out of the water I just yeah, they make me feel like shivery and funny. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then not only like we as, you know, the like, as as, norm, as normal people, quote unquote, yeah. we can't get to them. But the people who in the day, you know, in the time when they were occupied, the people who were there for all intents and purposes couldn't leave them. Like there was no, they were, we can't get to them. They can't leave. It's, yeah. I, yeah. And again, this is what the wives felt as well, um, that you know their husband worked in a place that they had never been to they'd never seen inside it they couldn't visualize what he was describing um so that in itself is is quite a fracturing thing in a relationship I would imagine that that the husband had this world and way of being that was completely removed from his wife and something that Mm -hmm. she had never had experience of yeah well and then you talk about the fact that then then they would come back and it's like the women had kind of they were in charge of the household while these men were gone and yeah. they come back and there's this really interesting dynamic of how do you reconnect with someone who not only have you not seen for two months but then in a month from now you're not going to see them again like it's the relationships i i can't imagine going through that with someone yeah. because it's not even like having a significant other who may travel a lot you know you're you're an author and I imagine when this is all done you'll be going on a lot of you know book festivals and book trips and things but yeah (laughs) but it's it's not even like that because you're going through different places and you can communicate with your significant others and your family Mm -hmm. when they're on the island when they're on the the lighthouse that's where they are they're there and they're isolated and yeah I yeah and in those days no phones Mm -hmm. like you know, nothing like that. In fact, I, I, I should think that you'd struggle to get a signal out there, to be honest, even Yeah, now. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they have two towers. I don't think there's one that's the le- the, the lighthouse, and then the other one is like a cell tower, so they can have. Yeah, and I can't imagine these lighthouse keepers scrolling through their Twitter feeds. That just would have been <laughs> Uh, so towards the end of our episodes, we like to ask nine questions that we just call the nerd nine. They're very lighthearted. I used to say they were rapid fire and they never are. So like we would get reviews, people being like, Adam, stop saying that because I go on tangents and that's how okay. I, 
Um, so the Why first nine? One, Why nine? Um, I just like alliteration. Nerd nine felt like okay. it, it worked well. Um, but it, it's either that or nerd 19 and 19 random questions felt like too many to think up. So. Yeah. <laughs> nine is good. Let's go with nine. Okay. All right. So the first one is, uh, what is the last book you finished reading? Real Life by Brandon Taylor, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year and is absolutely brilliant. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? In bed. In bed works. I see that's, I'm not, I'm horrible at reading in bed because I love, I don't sleep very well, but when I am ready to fall asleep, I love sleep so much that like I will find myself drifting off while reading, but I am so jealous of people who can. That's amazing. I prefer to say on a sun lounger on a Greek island, because that really is, you know, that would be great. But for now, the bed. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading? Yes. Sacred Country by Rose Tremaine. Have you heard of Rose Tremaine? I have not. She's a British author and she is just absolutely wonderful. And Sacred Country is about the transgender experience. It's about a little girl growing up in Suffolk in the 50s who isn't a girl, she's a boy. And it's just the most truthful, beautiful, human, sensitive book. And it made me fall in love with writing. Um, when we're allowed to travel, all of us again, uh, what is one place you'd like to go that you have not yet been to? Oh, um, I would like to go to Tokyo. I've actually never been to Asia and I'm fascinated by Japanese culture and I would love to go to Tokyo and I love sushi. Nice. Yeah, I, same. Um, <laughs> it, what, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Um, what you mean like Christmas? Yeah, I suppose yeah, the I sort I suppose the Americanized I need to come up with a better way of asking this because every British author has said, do you mean just like a like a trip or no, I mean a vacation, my favorite vacation. I'll celebrate that. Yeah. Um, um yeah, so, so like Christmas or you know, a version of that. Yeah. <laughs> um Halloween. Mm-hmm. Halloween. I love Halloween. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea. As a, yeah, that was a silly question. Uh cats or dogs? Ooh, dogs. It's close, it's really close. Yeah, okay, so obviously I think you had the right answer. You know, there's literally (laughs) a dog behind me. People have probably heard the other one barking in the the background. Uh, My co-host Jill has four cats. And so it's our like joking, like battle between the two of us is seeing what people answer. It's quite a binary thing, isn't it? But for me, they are are fairly close runners. So, but I'll say dogs, dogs pick it. Okay, (laughs) Uh, do you have a favorite food? Crisps. Um, chips. So, like, yeah, I, I think people know that they should be able to know what Chris said. Yeah, that worked. Uh, and then, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh, goodness me. Um, I think that is the reaction, by the way, that every author ever has ever given me. They like give me this look, like, really? And then they <laughs> take a, a deep question. Time. But you know what? Prince. Ooh. Not enough people have said Prince. That's a really good answer. I mean, I really, like I heard Purple Rain again the other day on the radio and I was just like, come on, this has got to be the best song ever written. I think Prince is absolutely legendary. Yeah, I think that's a perfect answer. Okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from the la- uh, reading The Lamplighters? Um, I hope they take away an interest in lighthouses. Um, and I hope that... Um, Ultimately, they take away a sense of light and hope um, from the end of the book um, that however difficult circumstances are and however unknown our realities are, that there is always comfort to be found in communication and reaching out to other people.
That is perfect. I cannot stop thinking about this book. I am so excited to speak with you. Emma, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.